Thank you so much, Grace and Choir and Orchestra. What a beautiful song. And so fitting for where we are today. We've been following the story of a young man called Daniel. His story's in a book with his name in our Bible. Prisoner of war in a war that went badly wrong and forced into exile in a foreign country. The first six chapters of the book tell much of his story and of his friends as they had developed and exercised an unwavering faith. That's what we called it, unwavering, in the face of enormous difficulty. We've started reading the second half of the book, beginning at chapter 7, which is really quite different. It's all about these mysteries and visions and things that are not easy to understand that we've referred to as unveiled, as God is trying to help Daniel and us understand our situation and where life goes. Today we find ourselves in chapter 9, and again it's very different because most of it is a prayer of confession, and then we hear a response from God. Daniel has survived regime change in Babylon several times from Nebuchadnezzar and then Belshazzar and then Darius. And as we went through the chapters, that's what we saw. But when we come to his visions in the second half, we start the time clock again. And so his first couple of visions in 7 and 8 were during the reign of Belshazzar. But this vision that we're going to read about in the prayer happened in the reign of King Darius. The scene is set for us in the first couple of verses of chapter 9. In the first year, Darius, the son of somebody beginning with the letter A that I can't read, though I think in some translations it says Xerxes, by Berthamid, who became king over the realm of the Chaldeans, I, Daniel, perceived in the books of the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to the prophet Jeremiah, must be fulfilled for the devastation of Jerusalem, namely, 70 years. He's referring to another prophet in the Bible who has his own book named after him, Jeremiah. But in order to understand what's going on there, we've got to go further back in history. Last week was like a big history lesson. Today's like a Bible history lesson in some ways. We've got to go all the way back to God's people when they left Egypt, when God rescued them from Egypt, took them across the Red Sea, through the desert, and into the Promised Land, and we call it the Exodus. Well done. That person does get dinner afterwards. They arrived at the Exodus in the wilderness at Mount Sinai, and it was there that God made a covenant with his people, and they received the Ten Commandments of the Ten Words. And at Sinai, God asked his people to remember the covenant and to observe a Sabbath, a day off, if you like, once a week, partly because God wanted to remind them they're free from slavery. You don't need to work yourself to death, which sometimes I think we need to hear too. We are free. We don't need to work all that much. God is our provider. But it was also a sense of free to do something, free to delight in God himself, not to be busy with other things. And he instructed them not only to keep a Sabbath day once a week, but every seven years to have a Sabbath year when they would plant no crops, there would be no pruning of the vineyards, and in this seventh year, the land would get a rest that would lie fallow. In the end, then he asked them to do something even different. After seven times seven, 49 years, there should be a year of jubilee, a special year, where slaves were released, where they were indentured servitude, debts would be canceled, everyone was given back their property, ancestral property, if they'd had to sell it for one reason or another. And it was a reminder to the people, regardless of their station in life or their socioeconomic circumstances, that their lives and their land ultimately belong to God himself. Though I do wonder about this. My mortgage will be due up next year. 
Like many of you have been facing high interest rates. What do you do? Do you float? Do you fix? What? How are we going to afford to make all this happen? I was thinking about this. If it's like 49 years and then everything's forgiven, what do you do if you go to the Royal Bank and it's year 45 and go, I'd like $700,000 loan, please? And they know full well you're not going to pay it back. Like, uh, I don't see how that works. Or how settled would you feel in your house because you didn't buy it brand new, somebody lived in it before you, and eventually they're going to come in the door and say, ours, thank you, appreciate you looking after it for us for a few years. God's ways are not our ways, that's definitely for sure. But the covenant that God was making with them gave them a fair warning of what would happen if the people violated it. They would lose fertility, not just in the land, but themselves. There would be a loss of peace and of safety. There would be a loss of God's liberating presence. Instead, they would discover coming upon them disease and terror and destruction and plague. That continued rebellion would lead to this and it would last for a period of suffering that would go on and on. Unrelenting hostility towards God would ultimately bring enemies and desolation to the land and to the people. And when they were in captivity... Maybe the land would get the rest that it needed. But the covenant also said what would happen if they turned to God instead away from him. If they would turn to him and confess their sins like we've been singing and hearing about. That God would forgive them. That he would remember his covenant. He would remember them. He would remember their land. And when Moses later on would rehearse this story in this covenant with everybody who was about to enter into the promised land, the book of Deuteronomy, a retelling it for a new generation because they'd been wandering for 40 years. When Moses was with them, he repeated the whole story that if they would wholeheartedly seek after God, he would find them and be merciful. Well, centuries after Sinai, we do come to the prophet Jeremiah. And he's been telling people, things ain't going well around here. You've been ignoring God. You've been ignoring his covenant. You're courting disaster. Nobody really listened to Jeremiah. Not for over 20 years did anybody care what he had to say. And because of the rebellion, Jeremiah kept reminding them, war will come. Heartache and devastation will come and we will lose. And Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and take them into exile. But at the end of 70 years, things could change. And so Jeremiah wrote this to the people. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to send for all the tribes of the north, says the Lord, even for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, my servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants, and against all these nations around, I will utterly destroy them and make them an object of horror and hissing, and an everlasting disgrace. And I will banish from them the sound of mirth and the sound of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the sound of millstones and the light of the lamp. The whole land shall become a ruin and a waste, and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Within another decade, it actually happened. Jeremiah's prophecy was fulfilled. People were taken off into exile, Jerusalem was destroyed. The temple in Jerusalem was destroyed. But Jeremiah sends a letter to these people that are in exile. You can read about it in chapter 29. He tells them to settle in for the long haul. Build homes, plant gardens, grow vegetables, get married, have children, flourish, and help Babylon to flourish too. 
That didn't go over well with everybody because there were some real popular preachers around there saying, oh, God will bear us back in a couple of years. This won't take very long. Just hang in there. It's going to be great. And Jeremiah's going, eh, 70 years is a long time. And you know, when you think about it, for those of us that love reading Jeremiah because it's got this beautiful promise in it about he'll provide for us. God's got something great for you to happen. He didn't actually mean you. I have plans for you. He didn't mean you. Jeremiah, when he wrote to those people, didn't even mean the people that were necessarily alive because they would be there for 70 years. Most of the people that went there would die before they ever left. God had plans for his people as a whole, not just for each individual. And many of the individuals didn't make it, but his people did, as we're going to see. And Jeremiah says this to them, when you call upon me, that's God speaking, and come and pray to me, I will hear you. When you search for me, you will find me. And if you seek me with all of your heart, I will let you find me, says the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, says the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So here we are in Daniel. He's read this stuff. He's aware of what God said through Jeremiah. And so Daniel began to pray in verse 3. Then I turned to the Lord God to seek an answer by prayer and supplication with fasting and sackcloth and ashes. I prayed to the Lord my God and made confession, saying, Ah, Lord, great and awesome God, keeping covenant and steadfast love with those who love you and keep your commandments. We have sinned and done wrong, acted wickedly and rebelled, turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. We have not listened to your servants, the prophets, who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Righteousness is on your side, O Lord, but open shame at this day falls on us, the people of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those who are near and those who are far away, in all the lands to which you have driven them because of the treachery that they have committed against you. Open shame, O Lord, falls on us, our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, because we have sinned against you. To the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness, but we've rebelled against him and have not obeyed the voice of the Lord our God by following his laws, which he has set before us by his servants, the prophets. All Israel has transgressed your law and turned aside, refusing to obey your voice. So the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, have been poured out upon us because we have sinned against you. He's confirmed his words that he spoke against us and against our rulers by bringing upon us a calamity so great that what has been done against Jerusalem has never been done under the whole heaven. Just as it is written in the law of Moses, all this calamity has come upon us. We did not entreat the favor of the Lord our God, turning from our iniquities and reflecting on his fidelity. So the Lord kept watch over this calamity until he brought it upon us. Indeed, our Lord God is right in all that he has done, for we have disobeyed his voice. That's a long reading and tragic at that. But it is a prayer of confession. And Daniel certainly did not pull his punches about their responsibility and what happened. You can look at some of the words in that passage if you've got your device open or a Bible in front of you. He says things like sinned, 
done wrong, acted wickedly, rebelled, turned away, didn't listen, treachery, public shame, not obeyed, transgressed your law, sinned, iniquities, disobeyed, acted wickedly. It goes on and on and on. And yet, while his prayer of confession sounds so awful, it is actually God-centered, even if it's people-oriented. And I want you to look at how he speaks of God in the next few verses, beginning in verse 15. And now, O Lord our God, who brought your people out of the land of Egypt with a mighty hand and made your name renowned even to this day, we have sinned and we've done wickedly. O Lord, in view of all your righteous acts, let your anger and wrath, we pray, turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy mountain, because of our sins and the iniquities of our ancestors. Jerusalem and your people have become a disgrace among all our neighbors. Now therefore, O Lord, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his supplication. And for your own sake, Lord, let your face shine upon your desolated sanctuary. Incline your ear, O my God, and hear. Open your eyes and look at our desolation and the city that bears your name. We do not present our supplication before you in the ground of our righteousness, but on the ground of your great mercies. O God, hear. O Lord, forgive. O Lord, listen and act and don't delay. For your own sake, O my God, because you love your city and the people that bear your name. Daniel really looks at God's consistency here, starting in verse 15, reminding God of his actions in the past, the things that he has done for people over history that they were well aware of, the greatest of which was that Exodus moment when they left Egypt in the cover of night, and they made it across the Red Sea, and they made it through the wilderness, and they made it to the promised land, and found a place to live. It was this monumental act of redemption and bringing people home to where they needed to be. God demonstrated his power against Egypt, against the forces of nature, against anything and everything, to bring his people to freedom. It was the event that was the central plank, if you like, of their faith in God. And it was the event that reminded them of God's faithfulness and redemptive love and his power. Daniel simply asking God here, be consistent with what's happened in the past, your righteous acts, do it one more time for us. But he also appeals to God's reputation as well in verse 16. He reminds God about his fame, his renown came about because everybody heard about this big exodus. Everybody knew what God could do. Everybody knew that he'd come to deliver and rescue his people. So what would they be thinking now that his people are in disgrace? They've been in exile. It's almost 70 years. They're stuck here. What would people be thinking now when God's city and God's temple are in complete ruins where they're a disgrace and an object of scorn? The implication was that their shame was God's shame and people would laugh and mock their God. And so in verse 18, Daniel gently but firmly reminds God that the city and the temple and the people bear his name. Their destiny and future is bound together for good or ill. Lord, let it be for good. Come and rescue. And he refers to the covenant that he's become very aware of. In fact, do you notice how often he uses the word your when he's talking? 
It's like a bell dinging every sort of few phrases you get this word, your. Your people, your righteous acts, your city, your holy mountain, your desolated sanctuary, your ear, your eyes, your great mercies, your name. It's not rhetoric. There's a profound theology here. At the heart of the covenant is this relationship between God and his people, a relationship that was personal and very possessive. God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. And Daniel's reminding God of this. That's what you said. And so Daniel asked God to listen to his prayer and petitions, to let your face shine upon us. He asked God, incline your ear, open your eyes, pour out your great mercies. He pleads with God, oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Don't do it for our sake. We're undeserving, we know it. Do it for your own sake. Because it will bring glory to your name. It will show the nations once again that you are the God and the God who comes to rescue and to save. You ruined your own reputation by taking us to repentance. That's, we deserved it. Restore your name and your reputation, not for our sake, but for your own sake. Do you notice the corporate nature of all of this though? It's interesting to me. There's no finger pointing or blaming others, them and us. And Daniel seems to have been heroic all through this book, always choosing well. He doesn't blame anybody. He confesses his own sin and the sin of the people. And he takes responsibility. Sure, responsibility is not very popular in our culture. Autonomous creatures that we are, we're more obsessed with fair treatment. And if we're honest, mostly for ourselves. We certainly don't want to suffer for something we didn't do. Even if we're guilty, we often choose to blame somebody else. A habit that goes all the way back to our first parents in the garden. Adam blamed Eve, Eve blamed the snake, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Terrible dad joke. (laughs) But we have been shifting blame and wiggling our way out of responsibility ever since. We don't want to look bad on somebody else's account. We blaze our own trail. We control our own destinies here in Alberta. I take care of me Taking care of you is your job. That's what we believe. That's what we're told. But Daniel chapter 9 forces us to face up to a hard question. Church, do we need to confess? Do we need to confess? We live in a broken world. We're not exempt. It may not be our intent to do wrong, But we're not exempt from what happens. There is no them and us. We're a society and we're all in it together. We cannot run away from our corporate identity and responsibility. And you can take your pick. Homelessness, addictions, poverty, trafficking, war, child labor. It's where we live. It's how our world works. Church, we do need to confess. We do. We too easily overlook the significance, I think, in the New Testament when it refers to church as family, God's family. We may not stand in a national covenant with God like the people of Israel did in this story, but we are bound together very tightly in this spiritual family held together by the blood of Jesus Christ. God is our father, Christ is our big brother, but we all end up being siblings together in this big family. We stand together. 
not simply neighbors in the same town or city or province. We stand with one another, a phrase the New Testament uses over and over again, at least 54 times that I've been counting, one another. We're told to love one another, to live in harmony with one another, to welcome one another, to comfort one another, to serve one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to submit to one another, to love one another, to encourage one another, to esteem one another, to show hospitality to one another, to do good to one another. And that list goes on and on and on. There is no us and them in the family of God. We are in this thing that we call faith together. We help each other in the journey and the good times and those hard times too. And during those bad times, rather than sitting in judgment on somebody else and their sins and their choices, we need to remember our own vast need of grace. Yes, we do need to confess. And when Daniel is still praying, Heaven's answer is on the way, remarkable. 70 years, all the things that they've done, and heaven's answer is on the way. Daniel's praying for restoration, but here we read of a a fresh revelation. Begins in verse 21. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I'd seen before in a vision, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He came and he said to me, Daniel, I have now come out to give you wisdom and understanding. At the beginning of your supplications, a word went out, and I've come to declare it. For you are greatly beloved. So consider the word and understand the vision. Angel Gabriel, he showed up last week in chapter 8, and here he is again, sent with a word from God to Daniel. What a word it is at the end of this big confession. Verse 21, you are greatly beloved. You're loved. I love you. There's the message from God. Despite the circumstances, the difficulties, the sin and the shame, God says, I love you. Think about Daniel, the story we know. He's been kidnapped. He's been enslaved. He was probably castrated. He lived under oppression. He's been betrayed by his co-workers. He lived in constant danger. He was thrown into a pit filled with lions. He survived all this regime change, never easy in the Middle East. And yet God says to him, you are loved. God's love for us is not measured by how easy our life is or how prosperous we are or not. It is no indicator of God's love. After all, Daniel's life was far from easy. And yet he was loved and treasured by God because what God can give is far more than anything we could imagine or earthly ease that we desire. When you think about it, when we go through hard times, it doesn't mean that God's abandoned you. It doesn't mean that God's forsaken you and walked off and couldn't care less. In fact, sometimes God lets us experience some things to teach us about what truly matters. But certainly we don't need to look at our own lives and imagine God doesn't love me. He forgot about me. He left me in the sidelines. The cross and the tomb, an empty tomb, are well way more evidence of how much God loves and treasures you than what's in your bank account or the size of your home. We can be assured of how much God loves us. Jesus himself said, this is my commandment, that you love one another. There it is again. Love one another as I have loved you. 
There is no one has greater love than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. And Jesus gave his life for us. He said, henceforth, I call you no longer servants, but friends. We are greatly beloved. You are greatly beloved. And now comes the vision. These next four verses are actually considered, I think, by most Bible scholars, to the most difficult part of the whole of the Bible to understand. St. Jerome, he was a great scholar and translator of the Bible, lived in the fourth century, way closer to Jesus' time than ours. He wrote a little book about Daniel, and in this he said this, I realize that this question, these last four verses, has been argued over in various ways by men of greatest learning, and that each of them has expressed his views according to the capacity of his own genius. And so, because it's unsafe to pass judgment upon the opinions of the great teachers of the church and to set one above another, I shall simply review the view of each and lead it to the reader's judgment as to whose explanation ought to be followed. In other words, I've no clue. And I'm thinking if he didn't know, there's very little chance of me knowing anything very enlightening about this, but at least we can read it together, see what the vision says. Here's what Daniel saw. Seventy weeks are decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand from the time that the word went out to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until the time of an anointed prince, there shall be seven weeks. And for 62 weeks it shall be built again with streets and moat, but in a troubled time. After the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the troops of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. He shall make a strong covenant with many for one week, and for half of the week he shall make sacrifice, and offering will cease. And in their place shall be a desolating sacrilege until the decreed end is poured out upon the desolator. See what I mean? Oh, what are all these weeks? What do the numbers mean? Are they sequential? Do they overlap? When should we start counting? Who's the anointed prince? Who's the anointed one that's cut off? Where's this flood? Most scholars take this all to mean, at least the numbers, to mean years. Because nothing literally happened in the 70 weeks, which is interesting for those of you that always harp on at me about trying to take the Bible very literally, because nothing happened in 70 weeks, so it doesn't mean that. And everybody agrees that much. It doesn't mean 70 weeks, more likely 70 years. Or maybe it's 70 times 7, and then you get to 490 years. Kind of complicated. Nobody knows. But helpfully, the angel Gabriel gives six reasons in verse 24. If you want to look at it, you'll see them of why this is happening, whatever it is that's happening. His first phrase, he says, is to finish transgression. That's why it will happen. And that sounds a little bit like chapter 8, where we were last week when we read of this little horn, a little king that would emerge, Antiochus, who set his assault on Jerusalem, and he desecrated the temple. Sure sounds like him. And then Gabriel says there'll be the end of sin. And then after that, an atonement for wickedness. Would that be atonement on behalf of the terrible king who destroyed the city and desecrated the temple? Or would it be atonement for God's people who have now come home and realize how sinful they are? 
Then Big Angel says to him, it will bring in everlasting righteousness. Well, maybe that's because they started getting their temple worship going around 164 BC by the Maccabees in Israel. Maybe that's what it was. Then uh, uh, Gabriel says, they'll seal up a vision. And ancient Near Eastern images and things, the way contracts were made or fixed, you'd roll a document up, pull a seal on it, and then you know it's authentic. It's the genuine thing. Is he referring to that his words are genuine? The last purpose Gabriel mentions is the 70 weeks would end and they would anoint a most holy place. Is that the restoration of the temple by the Maccabees again? It is hard to say. Most of these six things do correspond to things that happened 200 years before Jesus. But they also seem to transcend them too. Especially things like everlasting righteousness and the end of sin. That seems to be something in the future. It's gone way beyond that little horn Antiochus coming and fighting and devastating the temple. The language of the end coming like a flood and continuing until the end sounds a little bit like the flood in Genesis chapter 7 is referring to some desperate thing like this. And then there's this final battle. Ezekiel talks about one in chapters 38 and 39 of Gog and Magog, something that shows up in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. Is that what it's all about? If you ask me, most likely, whatever Antiochus did when he came and he destroyed the city and destroyed the people and destroyed the temple, it was a pale foreshadowing of whatever was going to come next. And it's a pattern we actually recognize in Daniel with all his stories of animals and beasts and numbers. It's kind of like this. King Belshazzar was bad, but King Antiochus was worse. Antiochus may have been worse, but Rome was going to be even worse. And Rome was even worse, and yet the worst is still to come. In other words, in this 70 weeks, whatever exactly it means, there is both a prophecy of something and a pattern as to how it happens. A prophecy that's awaiting complete fulfillment one day as history repeats itself, but it does so in a pattern that can be seen and recognized. Jesus himself referred to this pattern when his disciples asked about the destruction of the temple and the end of the age in Matthew chapter 24, and Jesus warns them about what would come. Even before the end times, there would be warfare and famines and earthquakes. There would be persecution and apostasy, false messiahs and prophets. And then he said to his friends, he said, you should run for the hills when you see the abomination that causes desolation or the desolating sacrifice in the holy place. People wonder exactly what that means too. Some think it means in 70 AD when the Romans showed up and Titus destroyed the temple. If you ever go to, to Rome, modern Rome, you can see a big arch that's made in Titus's glory and you see images carved into it of the temple and the menorah and all the things that were taken and destroyed. Maybe that's what Jesus is talking about. If you see Titus coming with the legions, run. And others think Jesus is talking about just before his second advent when he will return to take us to himself. Maybe that's what it means. Was Jesus referring to 70 AD when Jerusalem would fall? I think so, yes. But was he also referring to the end of time as we know it? I think so, yes. In fact, by alluding to Daniel's desolating sacrifice in the temple, he's seeing the prophecy and the pattern and reminding his followers of it. The temple had initially been destroyed by the Babylonians, and then again it was destroyed by Antiochus and desecrated. Then it would be desecrated again by Rome. 
And there's this continuum going on until the ultimate desolation of the temple by the one called Antichrist. These earlier fulfillments anticipate, in a sense, the worst. They're like a warning to us of false messiahs and prophets, and also an encouragement to us to endure hard times, and a reminder to us that God will ultimately prevail. God is sovereign over time and money and temples and places. He provides for our needs. He forgives and restores and redeems. You see, when you think about it where we sit, here in the big room or online at home, Jesus is our jubilee. Jesus is our jubilee, the Old Testament jubilee, when everything would be made proper again and go back to the way it was supposed to be. It's like a shadow of the future that God is promising to each one of us, the restoration of all things, a restoration that Jesus inaugurated when he showed up and he said, repent and believe for the kingdom of God is here and present and come near to you. A kingdom that will come in all of its fullness one day. When Jesus said, I am making all things new, his great promise to his people. That's why you hear me talking all the time about joining Jesus. Because he's inviting us in to what he is doing. To confess our sin. To submit to his reign. To experience his forgiveness. To practice his justice. To trust his provision. To carry his message wherever we go to practice his ethics, to take care of creation, to care and to live in hope of his promise and to live in his jubilee. Because the story of chapter nine is Jesus always wins. Would you pray with me? Father, there is a need in our hearts to confess, perhaps personally for our own sin, things we've done, and said and thought the things we've left undone that you've already asked us to do and we were too lazy or too tired or too rebellious Lord we confess our sin and our need of you and we pray like Daniel prayed that you would forgive us not for our sake as though we deserve it but for your sake because you promised that if we confess our sin you are just and would forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness we pray Lord on behalf of our church and our city and our nation that we have sinned and we need you and your restoration. Lord, we know what it is to feel fragile and vulnerable and alone. And today we need to hear your reminder that you are greatly beloved. Thank you for your love. Thank you for that love that Jesus demonstrated for us as he called us his friends and rescued us from sin and death and hell. And thank you for your great promise that you're making everything new. <laughs> and then your invitation to us to join Jesus in whatever he's up to. May we always learn to say yes to him. May we learn to live in the reality of your forgiveness and your redemption and restoration, knowing that we are loved and chosen by you. And as we stand with Jesus, he always wins. And so we pray in his name for his glory, for his kingdom. Amen.